This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. The Hawkesbury Race Club's Autumn Standalone Meeting will now be staged at Rosehill Gardens on Anzac Day with three Group 3 features. Main attractions will be the Hawkesbury Guineas, the Hawkesbury Gold Cup, the Hawkesbury Crown for the Phillies and Mares and the listed Hawkesbury Gold Rush for the Open Sprinters. With wagering severely impacted by the current lockdowns of pubs, clubs and TAB retail agencies, prize money on those feature races is down by 20%, but there's little doubt quality fields will still line up. The crowds will be missing, and so will the spectacular mountain views that only Hawkesbury can offer. But the racing will be first class. The Hawkesbury Cup, the Guineas, the Crown, and the Gold Rush are now at Rose Hill Gardens on Anzac Day. All of the action will be on Sky One, Sky Thoroughbred Central, and Sky Sports Radio. Multiple Group One winning trainer Gary Portelli is one of a minority of Australia's professional trainers who didn't follow the usual procedure of working for someone else. The vast majority have learned the basics from experienced trainers before going out on their own. Gary was riding ponies from an early age and by mid-teens he was a top show ring performer. He also rode track work most mornings for his mother, Morvine, who held a trainer's licence at that time. For a lengthy period of time, Gary worked through the night as a pastry cook at an orange bakery and would then go to track work before getting some sleep. He gained his own trainer's licence in 1990 and enjoyed enough success to encourage him to seek a future as a professional trainer. In 1991, he got an offer he couldn't resist from former trainer John Poletti, who had many horses of his own in stables at Warwick Farm. He asked young Portelli to become his private trainer. Gary was able to strike up a suitable deal and the whole family moved from Orange to Warwick Farm. Mum, Dad and brother Troy. The Portellis suffered a setback only three months later when John Poletti regained his own trainer's licence and Gary was left high and dry. He was able to take over the lease of the stables and he met those payments by pre-training horses for other trainers, principally Steve Engelbrett, to whom he remains eternally grateful. Six Group 1 winners later... And with the Golden Slipper Trophy sitting on his office shelf, Gary Portelli looks back on a roller coaster ride. He's online to talk to us now. Thanks for your time, Gary. Thanks for having me on, Tabby. Mate, had that Paletti deal lasted three years or so, you would have been happy enough. But three months was a kick in the teeth. Yeah, especially when um, Mum and Dad had given up so much to come down and, and Troy, you know, to come down to Sydney. Um, we had a small farm at Orange, which they leased out for two years, which was the term we'd leased the stables at Warwick Farm for. So basically, we had nowhere to go. Mm. Um, had, um, you know, obviously Steve Engelbrecht not come along, given me a few pre-trainers, that's for sure, but, um, which I'll be forever in his debt, that's for sure. Um, yeah, just some really tough times. It was back to the wall and had to work our way out, you know, and I often say, uh, 
Mum learnt uh, many ways and many different recipes with baked beans on toast, that's for sure. <laughs> different methods with baked beans. Well, for sure, and that's all we could afford, mate. Um, I remember um, Jeff Maines was a trainer at Warwick Farm at the time and great trainer, great bloke, and he uh, he um, um, introduced me to his bank manager out at Hawkesbury, mm-hmm. and um, – he, uh, he gave me a $10,000 overdraft, which was enough to just get basically, um, you know, some, some shavings into boxes and f- mm. some, some um, you know, some uh, feed for the horses and, yeah. and just kept us going till, um, till as I said, we got some pre-trainers and, um, you know, we were lucky enough that uh, mum had a pretty good eye and she has um, for a young horse and. Mm. She found a couple of horses, and one particular turned out to be Venti Cello, and, and mm. she sort of got the ball rolling for us because she ended up winning a few mm. at two for me, and, um, you know, things rolled from there. Well, you certainly came out the other side because as we speak, you've got 55 horses in work in the Warwick Farm stables. They're the same stables, aren't they? Exactly, yep. We haven't moved from here. We actually ended up buying the stables. Mm. Um, when uh, they come up for sale. So um, I've bought the stables where I leased off John Paletti and um, the next-door neighbour's facility came available. So at some point there's a stable started to build. I mm. I bought that as well. So we've got about an acre and a half mm. at Warwick Farm now, so it's fantastic. Mm. You tell a story about uh, the defining moment when you knew beyond doubt that you were going to be a horse trainer. I think you were 16. A friend at Orange had a thoroughbred called New Jade uh, with which he was having problems, and he got you to jump on it one day. What happened? Yeah, look, this horse was very strong, very strong horse. He didn't um, – he'd won about five or six provincial class races mm-hmm. when he was trained at Hawkesbury and um, trying to re- re-educate him to be a show horse. And um, anyway, the, one day I just thought, oh, this horse just wants to gallop. I think he's – I just going to let him gallop where this paddock was about mm. probably a 200-metre uh, long sort of uh, paddock, which was uh, quite an incline. Mm. And um, I said, bugger, I'm going to take my irons up and ride him like a jockey. <laughs> going back, my father, my grandfather was a jockey, so I always had that in the back of my mind. You know, this, this mm. thing was always there. I don't know whether I ever listened to him while he was telling me what I was doing wrong with my show horses and how to brush them and how to, to do everything. He was always sort of mentoring me without me even knowing. And um, all of a sudden, I, I've got this horse that won't settle, won't, didn't want to be a race uh, show horse, pulled the irons up, and I said, I'm going to let him run. So we let him run. Mm. And he went up this hill at a speed I've never been at on a horse's back. <laughs> Obviously, riding show horses, you weren't allowed to go fast. You had to yeah. try and keep them sound and healthy and mm. and relaxed. And this thing took off. And I tell you, I've never felt the power the the, the, the power of that horse going up that hill. I could, I remember like it was yesterday. I could feel the cold air, obviously in orange, yeah. uh, hitting me in the face and dragging the the moisture and the tears out of my eyes. And I was running down the side of my face. And the power of this horse was just giving me from under the saddle and behind through the hind quarter, it was just launching into its next stride. Mm. And I, I'm glad that hill was quite steep because I'm not sure what would have happened with a flat a no. flat paddock because he was running and he got the top and he'd had enough, thank God. But um, that's where it all started, right there that day. Your wonderful mum did a very good job as a horse trainer in her own right in those early days, but it was a world away from what she was doing as a teenage girl. Your mum could sing a bit. 
And yep, for quite uh, some time, she and her sister were backing vocalists behind some very big stars on TV shows like Bandstand and Six O'Clock Rock. That's right. She uh, she actually backed uh, Johnny O'Keefe um, on a few occasions. Apparently, I was obviously <laughs> wasn't born at the time, but um, yeah, mm-hmm. they were pretty good singers. And uh, from there on, you know, basically my life as a kid was, um, you know, a, bit, a lot of time I'd be dropped off with some toys or in the be- in the garage listening to mm-hmm. to them singing and practicing and whatever. And um, that's where she actually met Dad. Um, he's a bass player and. Mm. And uh, a lot of you know a lot of musicians in our family, except for me. My brother's a fantastic musician. He's a, mm. a pianist and yep. uh, studied jazz. He's a bachelor of music, and mm. unfortunately um, uh, for me, um, yeah, mm. didn't have that gift. You can't play a note. No, nah, never. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I listen to two KY too often. There's no music on two KY. That's for sure. <laughs> now, w- when was the last time you heard your mother sing a song? Been a long time. Um, well, often when we get sort of family get-togethers, they, they her and her sister would um, would get together and sing and harmonise. Our great had great um, harmonics, you know. And uh, mm. unfortunately, uh, her sister Annie Pam she moved up to Queensland, so they very rarely see each other. So I don't get to see to hear them sing and uh, too mm. often anymore. Although my father. Um, he still gets a guitar out and um, he tries to get my son Harper involved and uh, yeah. Harper loves music a bit, so he might be one to take it on. Mm. Now, we've got to pay tribute to your dear old dad, Joe Portelli, who is of Maltese stock. He's yep. been a tower of strength behind the scenes for many, many years. You've already told me that he was a bass player, he's a guitar player, he is a jack of all trades. There's nothing he can't fix around the stables. That's it. He's Mr. Fix-It at my place um, and uh, not that it's a job he enjoys doing because, you know, horses are always wrecking something or, you know, staff are breaking wheelbarrows and axles mm. and changing tyres and stuff. So, But, mm. you know, he's, uh, he's Maltese. He likes to have a whinge but uh, gets the job done. <laughs> <laughs> gets the job done. He was a trotting driver. He helps me with the pigeons, the racing pigeons as well. And Yeah. Um, yeah, just he's an absolute champion and, um, you know, he was, as I said, he was my main strapper when we first um, uh, lost, obviously, the uh, the uh, contract training for John Paletti and um, mm. uh, he was leading horses and doubles backwards and forwards up the streets and um, he used to sing all the way around the streets and apparently everyone used to love seeing Dad leading the horses around because he'd be singing a song or something, you know, I was always oh. happy, so that's Dad. He's a remarkable bloke, isn't he? Yeah, oh, he's a workaholic too, you know, 72-year-old, yeah. still working. Um, he's, even if he's on holidays, his days are set round basically work hours. So 10 o'clock, he has his little break, has a little breakfast. Uh, 12 o'clock comes, has his lunch break, you know, <laughs> drives mum mad because um, he's very regimental. So um, yeah. he'll never change. He's too organised. We're very organised. Um, sort of, I always say organised, organised and getting nowhere a lot of the time. <laughs> <laughs> now, Gary, what about your brother, Troy? He ran your satellite stable in Melbourne for a while. Is Troy still in racing? Yeah, he is. Um, he was, you know, the backbone of the whole business when it really took off. You know, um, he was there. Uh, he's a workaholic. He's a bit of a John Size type of trainer, Troy. Mm. Um, really good with horses, um, very methodical. 
uh, newy stuff. Um, but then um, obviously we, we grew to a stage where we thought Melbourne was a, an opportunity to, to expand. And unfortunately, went to Melbourne and I don't know if it's a Melbourne versus Sydney thing. We couldn't really get many clients. And, mm. and um, Troy being Troy, um, like to um, – hang on a second, Johnny. Mm. The dog's got in the fence. Yeah, hang on a second. What? Hey, the, hey, 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 hey. The dog caught in the fence. Hey, I've got a, I've got a, I've got a buddy, uh, a whippet, and he put himself between the garden fence. You're not going to get through there, mate. How did you do this? <laughs> he's got himself between the, the beach, the, the the fence in the. Yeah. He's got he's got he's got his shoulders through, but he can't get the rest of himself. Yeah, through. he's stuck. Believe this. Have you got any help there, or are you uh, no, solo? Right, do you, do you want to you want to rescue him? We got him. He's like, yeah, get away! Believe <laughs> <laughs> that. He got his shoulders through, and he's um, yeah, he's, he's right. I got him back. Well, this I is a first, uh, Gary Portelli. This is a first. <laughs> That's the first time I've had a guest on the podcast whose dog got stuck in the fence. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, he's learned from the experience and doesn't do it again. You know, you might be the only trainer in Australia who can lay claim to winning your first race with a horse from Russia. His first right. 15 starts were in Moscow. Then he went to Brian Ralph in Victoria. You got him later and you won a race with him at Wagga with Graham Power on board. I love talking, talking to you, Tappy. You bring back so many great memories and things that I can't remember you, <laughs> you've, yeah. you've researched. It's true, I isn't could, it? Yeah, it is. Brian Ralph had him, and um, he was a magnificent horse. Um, he was the top horse, obviously, in Russia. And um, I had some clients that uh, had – they used to send me their, their horses that weren't city class, had them with Bobby Thompson, et cetera, and I'd get these sort of uh, horses that weren't up to, to the to the class, and we'd race them around the bush. And Anyway, this horse was down in Melbourne. There was two of them, another one called Formalist, and um, – he came to me after he just couldn't handle grass tracks. He'd raced on this sort of this, this a dirt track I think they had over there in Russia. It was like a velodrome. Mm. I remember watching the video of the Moscow Cup. It was a, the weirdest race I've ever seen. They went about five laps around this track, and um, one minute he was up running second, next minute he was back running tenth, and he'd go around the field and go to the front again, and then another one to take upon it. was just the weirdest race you've seen. But mm. anyway, it was a throw at the stumps for them to have a horse to, to come from Russia to Australia for the Cup. And he just couldn't handle grass tracks um, when they uh, they brought him over. So um, I remember he rang me, the owner, and he said, uh, would I just take him up to Orange and see how we go around the bush tracks and try and win a race? And um, I took him down to Wagga. It was a really heavy track, which probably resembled a dirt track. Mm. It was so heavy. Yeah. And he's first up over 1,600 metres, and he bolted him by four grand power, as you said, one on him. Mm. He's about 20 to one. One of my mates told me to have 20 bucks each way. I forgot. <laughs> I've so had, you had, I've to, had to square up. I had <laughs> yeah. to square up. It cost me more money to win the race than actually prize money. Yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, he was a, a beautiful animal, but unfortunately he went in the throat after that. And back in them days, throat operations were a bit of a disaster. So mm. um, he just went to stud. And I remember um, my neighbour had hit with um, Arabs and he just crossed this horse with the Arabs because he was so beautiful. So he was selling all these part Arab horses around the show scene. So he, at least he had a, a great life after racing in Australia. Your first city win was with a horse called Audible. February 1991, 
and a bloke called Mick Dittman was very keen to get on him. Yeah, look, Mick was um, – he was the king, you know. I just um, – for those probably not in that area that are listening to this probably wouldn't know who Mick Dittman was, but I tell you, he would hold uh, his own with the best riders in the world any year. Um, he was strong. He was professional. And it was like having Clint Eastwood on your horse, I always thought, you know. Um, <laughs> he was that sort of manner too. He's just this cool sort of customer. He didn't Wasn't talk it? a real lot, but just got the job done. And then I'll tell you, at the furlong, if someone come at him, he'd lift that horse over the line. And this horse, he'd ridden him once and said he'd found a race for him. He said, take him to Ramick. I'll ride him at Ramick over a mile. And um, I got there and Mick was six. So uh, Peter Cook. Didn't have a ride in the race, so I put Pete on, and the horse was a bit of a horse you had to really lift, and Pete was a gentle rider, he used to get the best out of him just through his hands, and this horse just didn't find all that sort of pressure. He actually was a horse that needed a strong rider, and um, I remember driving home, Mick rang that night and said he was sorry that he couldn't ride him. He said, but I found another race for him, two weeks' time, Warwick Farm, I'll ride him there for you, 1,400. Well, he won by about four lengths and ran a class record, absolutely bolted, and it was just the greatest feeling to uh, – to be there and, and have trained a, uh, our first winner in town it was, um, was particular with mum um, there as well, you know. Um, Unforgettable. It was always a dream. When you're training from the bush, you know, you you look to, you know, hopefully getting a winner or you know in town and, and when it finally happens, it's, it's a great relief. Well, just pause for a moment, Gary, to clear a commitment on the podcast. We'll be back with you in just a moment. In light of current circumstances, Inglis has reconfigured the schedule of auctions for the remainder of 2020. Easter Round 2 is now programmed for Sunday, July the 5th and will be a live auction subject to conditions being deemed suitable by Inglis. This sale will cater for horses that have deferred from Easter Round 1 or lots that were passed in through Round 1. The English Melbourne Gold Sale has been rescheduled to run as a live auction on July the 12th and 13th at Oaklands, circumstances permitting. The catalogue for this sale has been filled, but supplementary entries will be accepted. The English Chairman's Sale will proceed as a digital auction on May the 8th, while the English Broodmare and Weanling Sale will be split. Broodmares by digital auction on May the 10th Weanlings hopefully a live auction on July the 8th at Riverside. Inglis Scone Yearling Sale, a live auction on July 26. The Inglis Great Southern Sale, a live auction on July 14 to 15. And the Inglis Ready to Run will proceed as scheduled on October the 28th at Riverside. Inglis, doing their best in difficult times. Your first stakes horse was Forest Express. Only had 18 starts, only won two races, but one of them was the Group 3 Vanity at Flemington, but she was placed in about four other group races. She was a nice mare. Very handy mare, yeah. She was a cheap horse that Vin Cox actually bought uh, from, a, from a, I think it was a winter sale at Inglis, about 2000 $700, I think she was, something like that. Mm. And, um, yeah, she was very, very handy, um, had a great pedigree, as it turned out later on. The, the, the people that bought her were from England, and they knew they knew the, the pedigree pretty well. And, um, yeah, she went on to win the vanity. Um, she was stakes places set on a heap of occasions. She gave us a great um, introduction to that level of racing. 
Um, she was quite a, a, a difficult filly. She was very highly strung and, you know, um, a lot of fun to train, though, otherwise, but she always tried hard. And as it turned out, when she, we retired her, she went back to England and um, they put her in fold of Machiavellian. Mm-hmm. They sold her for like I think 1.2 million guinea, and Ooh, the yeah. first foal brought 900. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they did pretty well out of it. A mare called Before Too Long got you a little bit excited at one stage. She won four, uh, including a Group Two in Melbourne. Yeah, look, she was an absolute flying machine. At, at I think she was like 600 kilos at, uh, at the end of a two-year-old season. So a monstrous mare, mm-hmm. filly. Mm-hmm. Um, she. Um, she was very quick. She ran the course record at Mooney Valley. She she actually uh, uh, the, the night before the the um, the Cox Plate, we took her down and she beat Innovation Girl by about three or four lengths with Jimmy Cassie in the saddle. And uh, mm. yeah, she was a super filly for us. And uh, she ran the slipper. She drew the outside gate, let him up, was in front with fifty to go, and got run over and ran about two lengths tenth. And mm. um, yeah, she came out a fortnight later and bolted in the Phillies race by about four lengths with Jimmy in the saddle, and we had a lot of fun with her. Rena's lady uh, is not the best mare you've trained, but she'll always hold a special place in your heart because she was your first Group 1 winner. How did you get hold of Rena's lady? She had a lot of owners. Yeah, look, she was a syndicate that was a leased syndicate. Um, a guy called Graham Smith had this syndication where he, he uh, had a heap of mares that he bred from. He... Um, he would then syndicate the, uh, the or lease the the uh, the fillies and syndicate them amongst a heap of people, and um, you know we uh, um, we had a lot of luck with a lot of his horses, and um, she uh, she won the she won a midweeker or a Saturday race, and then she came out and um, had a bit of a mixed preparation going into the the Oaks and got a heavy track which she loved. Mm-hmm. And she won the Adrian Knox on the Saturday, and she backed up on the Wednesday and won the Oaks, twenty to one both times. And yeah, it was an absolute thrill to do that because at that stage Troy and I were still trading in partnerships. Oh. Uh, he had it down in Melbourne at um, one stage there, and she ran fifth in the VRC Oaks, and then she came out the next prep to win the the big one. So that was um, uh, a great start and just a, a weight off our our shoulders really because we'd trained a lot of winners. I think that was the years so then the years that we'd had. Big team, and we had um, um, we ran fourth in the Sydney Trainers Premiership two years in a row. Mm. But we weren't getting the good horses. We weren't getting the big wins, you know. So it was good to get that Group One off our shoulders, and and uh, feel like we we're you know we'd we'd joined that very elite group of trainers, you know. Yeah, Michael Rod rode her in both of those wins, the Adrian Knox and the Oaks. That's right. Yep, and uh, he went on to win another Group One for me later on as well. Mm. Which horse was that? Uh, Gold Trail. Oh, we yeah, went on to New Zealand. Big sprint in New Zealand for us. And, uh, mm. um, yeah, we went to New Zealand with him. He was a really handy sprinter. Mm. And, um, yeah, for him to win a group one was a fantastic effort. And mm. with some great friends of mine, the Mortons, Glenn and Lisa Morton. Mm. Um, they, uh, they were, they're now obviously still great friends of mine. And they, uh, they, um, the godparents to, godparents to my son, Harper. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, so uh, oh, fantastic, you know, just to have – and this one thing about racing does is that you bring people together that, you know, and make lifelong friendships, you know. Mm. He was a good horse for you, Gull Trail. He had his first start in Queensland, then he turned up at your place. You won yep. seven races, nine placings, $603,000, and this horse took you overseas 
three times to the New Zealand where he won the Group 1. Then I think he went to Singapore. Yeah, look, he um, he was just a horse that he struggled to win a maiden, you know. He won about, he had about four or five starts as a maiden. And I couldn't get him to win a race. And one day I said to Nash Willow at Canterbury, mm. just let him run, put the blingers on, let him run, don't hold him up. One by four. And in every preparation from there on, he went to a new level. Mm. Um, he went to just Saturday Company, and I thought, well, that's probably pulled him up. And then the next prep, he came back a bit stronger. He won a listed level, and then he won a Group 2 level. And then mm. we took him to New Zealand, he won a Group 1 level. Mm. And we were invited over to the Chris Flyer in Singapore, which was a great thrill. The first time travelling internationally with our horses, and um, it was a great sort of learning curve for us because uh, mm. travelling horses isn't easy. He ran a cheeky um, race too, didn't he? Ran a great race. He kicked clear on the turn and looked like he was home. He got run down late on a very heavy track, which he hated. So, you know, he couldn't believe it. You get all the way over there. It's dry all the time we've been there. Mm. And we got about eight inches of rain about two two races before our race. And mm. uh, But that track was unbelievable. It dried out pretty quickly, like, but it was still a heavy track. Mm. Kicked clear. Gave us a great, uh, great thrill. And then as soon as we pulled up, uh, we got um, uh, Nick Smith from the, the BBC uh, Racing came and asked us would we race him in the king stand. So after about um, Royal Ascot, so after a great deliberation of around two and a half minutes. You'd have fainted uh, with the owners. (laughs) What an amazing uh, thing to happen. Oh, we just couldn't believe it. Pinch ourselves type stuff, you know. Here we are. You keep looking back on this game and how tremendous it's been for me, Mm. um, you know, to to, um, be, you know, baking cakes and bread what have you one night dreaming about having a runner in Sydney <laughs> to be putting the top hat and tail on and racing in front of the oh, Queen yeah. was just amazing, you know. Joe Janiak um, said the same thing. Yeah, you know, it was just it's surreal. When you get to when you go to Newmarket, it is horse heaven. It's, it's, there's nothing short of horse heaven. Mm-hmm. Um and um you see the way they do things. The whole town is built around the horses. Um, the horses walk down from different paddocks and different places where they work them just down the main street. The cars ha- have to stop because the horses have got right away about everything. You just, I, I just can't paint the picture any clearer than you have to. You have to be there to see it. You know, it's just crazy. But um, it was the greatest trip ever for us. We didn't have any luck. The horse sort of slipped at the start and didn't really put in. He was stuck back in the pack, and he's a leader, and it just was a, a wasted race really. But just the experience was unbelievable. It took our, our families went over there. Um, it's just, yeah, like I said, one minute you're baking pies and <laughs> you know, in orange and dreaming about it and here you are doing this. You Next know, minute you, you, you were the earshot of the Queen. I oh, yes, you know, it's just, yeah, as I say, this game has taken me to such some fantastic places, mm. um, you know, and hopefully it, uh, it continues to do so. You've had a terrific association with the popular bloodstock agent, Louis Mahaika, and yep. his Laurel Oak Bloodstock Company. Now, you and Louis and many happy owners had a fantastic journey with a horse called Rebel Dane. Yep. Eight wins, nine placings, two group ones. What a genuine, gutsy, fair dinkum horse. Yeah, look, he, um, it was amazing story because some of the owners actually raced his grandmother without any success. Mm-hmm. I think she even won a race, and um, they raced the next foal, and they raced the next one with me, Texarkana. I think I won a couple of races with her, mm. and then they bred from her and uh, got this horse, Rebel Dane. And um, you know, so I know there was I know, so there was guys in that horse that had horses twenty years and had a Saturday winner, and next minute they got this really top class horse. It was great to see. You know, it uh, mm. changed a lot of lives. He was another one that um, 
went through his grades. And he's, I think he won his first four. His first time he got beaten was by Piero, but beaten the head. Mm. Um, had a bit of a win problem and was a little bit difficult to train. Um, had to keep him to sprints and fresh. And, um, yeah, he sort of went from, you know, winning a maiden at Canterbury to uh, winning a, a Sir Rupert Clark Stakes of a 1,400 at, at Caulfield. Yeah. That was a weird win too. I think they were experimenting, you know, with Group 1 races at that stage, having the last race because the best best betting turnover was late in the day. Mm. So they've, they've put it on last. And, of course, we've gone into the committee room for a drink after the race, walked out. And hardly any owners went down for it for some reason. It was on a Sunday. And um, <laughs> walked out the uh, committee room. And the only people left in the grandstand were the cleaners. <laughs> so there was no one to celebrate with. It was just the most empty feeling you've ever seen. Yeah. You've ever felt. And um, I remember there was just, even the cabs, there was no cabs. I couldn't get to the airport. I had to get one of the committee men to drive me to the airport and everything. So it was, uh, mm. it was the highs and lows of about 10 minutes, I'd say. But um, yeah, but just, you know, go back to the horse. He was just, he raced at the top level for year after year after year. And you don't realize what you've lost until he gets mm. retired, you know. Um, yeah, he was just he was just there every year at the top level. Um, sound took on the best. Lankin Rupee beat him in the TJ Smith once, and yeah, you know he, he was he was around about three or four horse, Oh, for sure. Every time we see a Moyer Stakes or a Shreya Stakes, and you know they were the races we raced in all the time. He loved the Valley, mm. and for him to win the the Manicato Stakes at his last preparation was um, was fantastic. Mm. I think the owners had trouble finding a stud operation to take him on, but they did eventually, and I think his first crop would be yearlings, are they? Yeah, they are, yeah, that's right. And, uh, yeah, it was hard to place. It's an amazing game this. You, you retire three-year-olds um, off the back of, um, yeah, a, a bunch of three-year-old wins, never taken on the first grade like he did year after year, and they stand for big, st- you know, obviously big money and um, – this fella couldn't get a home, you know, and um, he's got a good home now. But you know, it was just, it was just disappointing to see that the top level horses sometimes don't get a real good go at stud. But you know, I think, um, you know, I think you'd be right. Once he starts to get a few on the track, I've seen a fair few of the foals, and and they look pretty, uh, pretty good as far as types go. So mm-hmm. hopefully, he can do a job it, like right. he did the underdog. You know, he do it again when he gets the stud. You'll get some of them to train, I hope. Yeah, I've got a few already sorted. We've got a few breaking in, and. Mm. You know, he's um, yeah. They're athletic horses, very athletic horses. Oh, I like them. Lighten their feet. They look good. He was a great, strong colour too, wasn't he, Rebel Dane? Yeah, he was a magnificent horse. Really quality head on him. Mm. Um, you know, just a great horse to deal with. You knew him on race day. He would um, he would um, be really quite cantankerous to saddle. He didn't like the saddle coming towards him. He'd get he'd almost he'd want to bite you and, and carry on. And mm. as soon as I got that saddle on, you just see the demeanour. Mm. He would just all of a sudden go into this. He just wouldn't blink an eyelid. He would just be concentrating on what he was about to do. Focused, yeah. Yeah, he was focused. He was just. Um, uh, you just knew it was on, you know. And and you know he raced. I said at the top level, um, you know, for years. I think you know he just. I don't know. He's come out of Group Two or Group One company in the last twenty starts. Mm. Uh, he was a, a an absolute. Uh, bonanza f- uh, for the Port Telly stable, Rebel Dane. Mate, we're going to terminate segment one of our interview and I've got a lot more questions for you, so we'll be back very shortly with segment two, which is only a click away. 
This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis.